Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. This past week, Rhode Island's Governor Gina Raimondo announced that her state would reach out to help the roughly 1,200 DACA recipients, known as DREAMers, who live there. They could face deportation under an order from the Trump administration, which has ended the program. She said that funders will pay the $495 renewal fee for participants. This is a human issue. Get to know any one of these people. They came here when they were one year old, five years old, 10 years old. They had no choice. Their parents took them to this country, in most cases to flee another country for safety. The state is also pledging to help with legal advice, and they've joined a lawsuit with other states, including Vermont, Massachusetts, and Connecticut, against the administration. Despite the support of many state governments, immigrants living in New England illegally still have reason to be on edge. Trump's enhanced enforcement priorities are leading to increased arrests, and reports of federal immigration agents showing up at schools and courts are heightening fear among people in the country without authorization. But what happens when that fear is used as a weapon? Today, reporter Shannon Dooling tells us how immigration status is used to torment and intimidate and why more people may be looking for a way out. Antonia, who lives north of Boston, is nervous about being deported back to the Dominican Republic. She traveled here on a tourist visa and stayed in the country longer than she was authorized. But the mother of three has an even bigger fear, her ex-boyfriend. Esa persona... He hit me in the mouth, he yelled at me, he broke my phone, until one day I couldn't take it anymore because he grabbed a knife and threatened me and my children. Antonia says her ex grabbed a knife from her kitchen and ran around checking under the beds for another man who didn't exist. In his rage, Antonia says he waved the knife around, threatening to kill her and her children. Her eight-year-old daughter hid behind the couch. Because she fears for her safety, we're only using part of her first name. Her ex-boyfriend is a naturalized U.S. citizen, also from the Dominican Republic. She says after they first met, he'd give her rides and help her with her English homework. But all of that changed. I didn't want to be with him anymore, and I separated from him, and I distanced myself, but he kept looking for me and calling me. And one day he called me and asked me to go to his house, and that's when it started all over again. He started hitting me. He bit me on this hand, and I told him, this isn't okay. You're hurting me. I'm going to have to call the police, but I don't know how to speak English. So I grabbed my children and left. And it wasn't just the bloody lip, the bite marks, or the bruises. Antonia says her ex riddled her with psychological abuse as well. He knew she'd overstayed her visa and knew she was terrified of being separated from her children. I was afraid every time he did something to me because I couldn't call the police because he'd say to me that if I called the police, they're going to deport me. And I regret this because this is how he got away with the abuse. He just kept doing the same thing. 
essentially they're having to choose between safety and and deportation. And often it's not so clear cut. Julie Dahlstrom is director of Boston University's Immigrants' Rights and Human Trafficking Program. She says for survivors like Antonia, weighing the certainty of an abusive household versus the uncertainty of deportation can be a difficult choice. You know, when when a survivor picks up the phone and they're undocumented, they don't know who's going to be on the other end of the line. It, it is law enforcement, but they don't know how closely they're connected with immigration, which is really challenging. There is an avenue to protection that a growing number of immigrants are considering a viable option. Some people living here without authorization who've been victims of crime in the U.S. are eligible for protection from deportation. They can apply for what's known as a U visa. More than 400 applications were submitted last fiscal year by New England residents. Hema Sarang Siminski is a senior attorney at Boston's Victim Rights Law Center. She says the lengthy wait for a U visa used to be a deterrent for clients. But that appears to be changing under the Trump administration. It does feel like, you know, survivors are more willing to take that chance and wait for the U visa in the current climate, I think largely because of a a concern of, you know, not having anything else to fall back on. And they are taking a chance. While waiting for approval of the visa, applicants have no legal status and no work authorization. While she hasn't seen the same uptick in her Burlington, Vermont practice, immigration attorney Leslie Holman says she understands why some undocumented immigrants might consider the U visa their only option for some kind of status. She cautions, though, it's anything but a safe bet. The difficulty is the limit in the number of U visas, such that it may not necessarily provide a benefit, and the fact that it still doesn't provide the unfortunate victim with any kind of protection because they are not in status by filing. The Office of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services issues 10,000 U visas nationwide a year. There are close to 170,000 pending applications. The first step in the application process is filing with a law agency to certify the crime took place and the victim was helpful in an investigation. That could mean applying with a police department or a district attorney's office. Jake Wark is spokesman for the Suffolk County DA's office. There's really no question uh, that we've seen a very sharp rise in the overall number of applications uh, since this time last year. Wark says they've seen close to a tripling of U visa applications from 19 between January 1st and August 1st of 2016, up to 52 during that same time period this year. Nationwide, there have been concerns that unauthorized immigrants will be less likely to report crimes to local authorities, given President Trump's broadened enforcement priorities. In fact, a recent survey of advocates and lawyers finds there has been a drop in reports of crime by undocumented immigrants in some parts of the country. But still for others who may have been victims of crime in the past, desperation may be winning over, and some hope is better than none. Again, Hema Sarang Siminski of the Victim Rights Law Center. I think that survivors are really thinking about, you know, what what are avenues to safety right now? And there's just so much uncertainty that having some kind of application for relief in the works feels like it could result in some additional protection or, or safety right now.
And for Antonia, who just recently filed her U visa application, she says she's grateful for at least the possibility of protection. I mean, really, I think there are people who are treating women badly and abusing women just because they know they're not here legally. But we have rights, too. We have rights that we don't know about. That's the reality. Antonia feels a little relief now that her application is in. Immigration attorneys say the current wait for a U visa is anywhere between two and six years. That's Shannon Dooling of WBUR reporting. As hurricanes rip through Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, Texas, and Florida, the impacts are felt in New England, too. And not just in the high winds and the surf that we saw from Hurricane Jose along the coastline, but in the way we think about risks from these storms. Right now, the National Flood Insurance Program is $25 billion in debt, and Congress is trying to figure out how to make it work. But even before the funding crisis, the national program was not addressing the flood risks in many states, including Vermont. And as Howard Weiss-Tisman reports, some of the ideas under discussion could have real impacts in New England. Karen Hardy is standing on a bridge over the Ball Mountain Brook in Jamaica, and she's looking at a barren patch of land where her house stood before Tropical Storm Irene took it away six years ago. Hardy says she never thought much about flood insurance before Irene, but she learned a pretty tough lesson on the day after the storm. That was on a Sunday that happened, and I went to work Monday morning and called my insurance company and found out pretty quick that I didn't have flood insurance, and I maybe was a little slow on the take at that moment um, because I kept asking, well, (laughs) you know, what am I supposed to do? Property owners all over the country usually buy flood insurance through the National Flood Insurance Program, which is run by FEMA. And the program is built around the FEMA flood maps, which identify the neighborhoods where FEMA thinks floods are most likely to occur. Hardy's house wasn't in the FEMA flood zone, even though the brook ran a few hundred yards from her front porch. The program really doesn't address the kinds of risks that we have, for the most part, in Vermont. That's Ned Swanberg, and he's a floodplain manager with the Department of Environmental Conservation. Swanberg says for the most part, the FEMA maps are outdated, and scientists today know a lot more about where floods occur and how climate change can worsen storms and runoff. And to really understand the disconnect between where FEMA thinks flooding will occur and where it actually happens in Vermont, Swanberg says you have to take a close look at the flood maps. So this map shows both the special... Swanberg points to an area on the map that FEMA identified, and if Hardy's house was located there, her bank would have forced her to buy flood insurance. But in Jamaica and all across Vermont, flooding happens on steep hillsides and in small river valleys, and not just along the rivers where FEMA has its flood zones. Swanberg points to an area outside the flood zone, and he says, since Irene, the state's been working with communities to help them understand the real dangers of flooding. And at this point, uh, these houses um, have a level of risk that they may not be aware of. It's not really an area typically regulated by the, most communities, and it's not, it doesn't have flood insurance requirements that are placed upon lenders or homeowners as such. They do have a risk, 
Um, it would be really smart to know the map and to have flood insurance. And these kinds of areas do experience damage. So Vermont officials are watching the debate in Washington over the future of the insurance program, and they hope the feds can find the money to update the maps. And they're also paying close attention to some of the ideas being discussed on how to make the program more solvent. Ben Rose is with Vermont Emergency Management, and he leads the mitigation and relief work across the state. Rose says Irene exposed the risk that some of Vermont's mobile home parks face, many of which were built on cheap land in low-lying areas. And so if Congress is looking to raise the insurance rates or even get out of the business and let private insurance companies cover flood loss, Rose worries about what that would mean for some of the state's most vulnerable families. Some of the places where people live, in fact, some of the most affordable places for people to live are affordable specifically because they're flood vulnerable. And so it is a complicated thing to write policy around, and the federal government is struggling with that currently with the reauthorization of the National Flood Insurance Program. When towns sign on to the insurance program, they receive extra funding support before and after a flood. The maps, when they're accurate, help the state prepare and respond to disasters. And the program, on paper at least, protects property owners if they sign on. But Wyndham Regional Commission Director Chris Campany says towns should start preparing now for what he says are sure to be significant changes to the national program. The assumption is, well, I'll just rebuild it and if it washes away, somebody will be there to bail me out. I don't think that for much longer people are going to be able, be able to rely on that mindset. Because we've seen this in both parties, we've seen it under different administrations, this, this movement towards putting more of the risk on the individual or on the town or on the state. Because, Campany says, regardless of what Congress comes up with to fix the National Flood Insurance Program, there's sure to be more floods and more damage in Vermont and across the country. That's Howard Weiss-Tisman of VPR reporting. One of the ways to prevent flooding is by planting trees. A study in the U.K. last year showed that planting trees strategically could reduce the height of flooding by up to 20 percent. But another study just out from Harvard shows that New England is losing its trees at a pretty rapid rate. The authors say our region is losing forest at a rate of 65 acres a day and could lose more than a million acres of forest over the next half century. Fred Bever has more. When Paul Hunt heads out into Sebago Lake, he sees a handful of cottages here and there along the shore, but mostly it's the green, green cover of a 280,000-acre watershed. Or as Hunt, the environmental services manager for the Portland Water District, sees it, a vast natural filtration system for the lake, which supplies drinking water for more than 200,000 people in southern Maine. Almost every other water supply in the country that uses a lake or a river is legally required to filter the water and then disinfect it. There are about 50 in the whole country, and this is one of them, that the water is so clean that it doesn't require filtration. The water that feeds the trillion-gallon lake follows an ancient glacial path that starts a few miles below the Sunday River ski area. And it's thanks to good stewardship by landowners along that 50-mile riverway, Hunt says, that the watershed has retained and even bettered its purifying capacities over the last century. That's the good news. The bad news is 91% of that land is privately owned, meaning it could be converted to non-forest uses whenever the owners make that decision. It's their, it's their land. 
and the risk of forest loss is rising throughout New England, according to a new report from researchers associated with the Harvard Forest in Peterson, Mass. The report notes that before the end of the 20th century, much of the forest land lost in New England during its agrarian heyday had been reclaimed. But the authors also found that since the 1980s, New England's farming economy stabilized, and with development continuing apace, the forest cover trend line started heading back down. It's a drip, 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 and it amounts to 24,000 acres a year. Robert Purcell, one of the report's authors, is executive director of the New England Forestry Foundation. He says each of the six states is losing forest each year to housing, businesses, parking lots, and roads. The losses range from a low of 800 acres a year in Rhode Island to a high of 7,000 in Massachusetts. If that pace continues, New England will lose 1.2 million acres of forest cover over the next 40 years. Prichelle says soil quality, water quality, wildlife habitat, and woodland jobs are all at risk. So that's alarming because New Englanders love their forest. We get a lot of benefits from our forest. And if we don't do something about it, it's going to continue to erode over time. The report finds that since the 2000s, the number of forested acres protected each year by fee or by easement has fallen substantially, while annual federal and state funding for preservation has been halved. The authors say it's time to recommit to conservation, calling for some 70 percent of the New England landscape to be protected forest by the year 2060. Here in Maine, which is home to more than half the region's forested acres, the protection goals can make people like Patrick Strauch a bit wary. He's executive director of the Maine Forest Products Council. I want to be arguing for forest management and being concerned about development, but I also live in, and work in these rural areas of Maine. And, you know, to some degree, the exodus of population <laughs> needs to be... Um, I wouldn't mind a little development in some of these more rural areas in Maine. The report's authors say they don't want to lock up New England's forests. Although they call for preservation of 3 million acres in a wild state, the remaining 27 million acres on the list would be barred to development, but still open for forestry, recreation, and other economic activities. That's Fred Bever reporting from Maine Public Radio. We've got links to the full report at nextnewengland.org. Coming up, if you think Vermont and New Hampshire are really different, but you can't quite figure out why, well, look at the rocks. We'll explain next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. The listeners to Brave Little State, the people-powered podcast from Vermont Public Radio, well, they've got a knack for curiosity. Visitors to the website there vote on their favorite listener-submitted questions about Vermont sending reporters scampering across the Green Mountain State in search of answers. When we heard the question they tackled for this month's episode, we knew we had to discuss it on Next. What does the geology have to do with the character of Vermont? How do the underlying 
rocks, soils, topography affect how Vermont is different from other New England states and from New York? The Brave Little State team decided to tackle this inquiry by comparing Vermont with its cross-river rival, New Hampshire. Angela Evansy is with us. She's the host of Brave Little State. She's managing editor for podcasts at Vermont Public Radio. Also with us is Sam Evans-Brown. He's host of Outside In, a podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio about the outside world and how we use it. He's also a self-professed secret geology nerd. Angela and Sam, welcome back to Next. Hey, John. Thanks for having us back. Yeah, it's wonderful. Thanks. Uh, Angela, I'll start with you, and, and let's talk about your episode and, and where it starts with this interesting observation by your question asker. Let, let's hear from him. His name is Matt Burgo. He's from Hinesburg, Vermont. Driving from Vermont to New Hampshire, um, you know, one of the things I really notice is that, like, you cross the state line, it looks different. It just seems like, oh, now we're in New Hampshire. <laughs> like, you can kind of tell. It's funny. All right. So, Angela, I'll put that to you. I mean, did this question resonate with you as, as you drive from Vermont over to New Hampshire? Does it feel different? Yeah, I mean, it does resonate, I think, with many of us. Um, it's obviously hard to generalize. Uh, you know, there are so many local variations and unique landscapes within each of our states. I grew up in the Champlain Valley of Vermont, kind of right up against Lake Champlain. Um, and it wasn't until I got older that I realized that not all of the state was like that. Like compared to the rest of Vermont, the Champlain Valley is like the Midwest. It's super open, you know, wide vistas, long range views. Um, I now live much closer to the New Hampshire border and I do cross over there quite a lot. Um, and when I cross over, I want to say maybe I feel like it is actually a little bit more open than where I am now Um not as many like tight little valleys and hollows. Um, but I think it's also very much a mental and psychological experience as we explore a little bit in our episode. Yeah, a little bit of a psychological barrier. How about you, Sam? Do you feel a difference when you go state to state? Oh, my God, absolutely. <laughs> I feel like I've, we've talked about this every time we've driven up through, you know, through Hanover on 89, that you go from sort of like broad valleys and kind of rolling flatlands into these steep-walled Vermont river valleys very quickly as soon as you cross the Connecticut River. We, we find out throughout the course of this episode and in our conversation today that the geology means that the people are a little bit different and the politics are a little different. But let's start way back with the geology. Um, and Angela, tell us the story about Vermont's seacoast. Vermont, once upon a time, actually had some water frontage and, and not just on Lake Champlain. Yeah, that's right. And I should shout out as well to my colleague, Henry Epp, who helped report this episode with me. And, and he did a lot of this research. Um, and it's true. About 400 million years ago, um, what we today call Vermont and New Hampshire were really far apart. They were actually separated by an ocean. Um, and Vermont at that time was coastal property, I'm proud to say. The eastern border of the state up to roughly where the Connecticut River is now was at the edge of a supercontinent called Rodinia. Um, and then off the coast of Vermont, there were islands and microcontinents floating around. They had rafted off of proto-Europe and proto-Africa. Um, and those were the landmasses that eventually slammed into Rodinia, into Vermont, and created the eastern section of New England, including New Hampshire. So let's move ahead to this this moment in, in geology. The landmasses collide. I, I'm going to play some tape from your episode with the geologist Lori Grigg. She teaches at Norwich University. She described the difference between Vermont and New Hampshire geography using two terms, the folds and the blobs. Let's listen. The folds versus the blobs. So the metamorphic rocks that are fairly well beat up in Vermont have been folded. 
So you can think of if you take a piece of paper and you push it from either side, then it's going to fold into multiple ridges up and down. So essentially, that's what happened. Okay, so there she's talking about the folds. Now let's hear about the blobs. In New Hampshire, instead, we've got these lots, many, many big giant blobs of granite, which is a different kind of rock. It's not a metamorphic rock. It's an igneous rock, which means it formed from a magma. It formed from a magma. Sam, when I hear magma, I think about volcanoes, and I don't think about volcanoes anywhere in New England. Were there volcanoes in ancient New Hampshire? There absolutely were, uh, which is one of these uh, neat things that you can do with Google Earth. Google the Ossipee Mountains or Patuckaway State Park, and you can find there, there are mountains in both of those spots that are, that are distinctly circular. And what that is is the collapsed cone of an extinct volcano. Both of them are, are what are known as volcanic calderas. But both of them, you know, what you have when you have two continents hitting each other is you have rock that's being forced down into the, the mantle and the core. It becomes quite hot, and then it bubbles up. Uh, in the form of volcanic activity, sort of behind the the zone of the of the collision. So these big blobs of magma cool down, and then it affects the topography, the geography of New Hampshire. How exactly? What happens is you have these blobs of igneous rock that that bubble up, and they they uh, you know come to reside in various places in the crust. And then later, what acts on them is the glaciers, which then come down and they carve their way into the crust, and anything that's less resistant gets sort of chipped away by by thousands and thousands of years of the action of this ice. Um, and so, so what you have in New Hampshire anyway is the mountains that remain were are sort of the roots of the ancient Appalachian Mountains that have, you know, the, mountain, the mountains themselves are entirely gone, and the, the mountains we see today were, were all underground, and that was the, the sort of the base of those mountains that has been revealed by the action of the glaciers. And it's the rock that's most resistant to the ice that has managed to survive this onslaught of the ice ages. And there's more in this story about the impact of the glaciers, Angela, that's really interesting, including the fact that when we talk about these glaciers uh, moving down and retreating over and over again through this region, it's not really that long ago in geologic time, as opposed to the collision of these different parts of the Earth millions of years ago. This was relatively recently. Yeah, exactly. Those continental collisions we were talking about earlier, again, were roughly 400 million years ago. And the glaciers only came around, I think, like two and a half million years ago. Um, And then, like you say, they came down and retreated and came back more than a dozen times over the course of um, a couple million years. And then they didn't kind of make their final exit until about 13,000 years ago. So if you think about kind of the timescale we're talking about, that's pretty recently. One of the things that the glaciers leave behind is that lake that you know so well, the, the, the lake that's directly to the west, the, the part that kind of feels like it's closer to the Midwest. Lake Champlain is, is another remnant of what's left behind by the glacial activity. Yeah, that's right. So during this time where we had all this glacial activity, um, and then as well when they were receding, um, part of Vermont actually did turn into an inland sea um, where the Atlantic Ocean rushed up the valley that is made by uh, the St. Lawrence River today because the retreating glaciers were so heavy. They were one to two miles thick. They were depressing the crust, and it was just lower, which allowed the ocean to flow in places that, you know, it doesn't flow now that they've kind of bounced back. Um, But during this time, the Atlantic Ocean rushed into Vermont's Champlain Valley, um, and, and we had an inland sea for a couple thousand years. 
Um, and that's why that part of the state now has such rich soil and also a lot of clay. You had these sediments that were flowing down off of the Green Mountains into the Champlain Sea and settling at the bottom of that valley. Um, and also, too, in the Connecticut River Valley, kind of along the Vermont-New Hampshire border, you also had a glacial lake called Lake Hitchcock. We're going to talk about that rich soil again in the western part of Vermont and how that added to the character. I want to get back to one of our foundational questions here, though, about how the the geography, the geology of these places actually affects your experience there. You know, Sam, your, your podcast is about the outdoors and you go hiking and backpacking and skiing all over this region. Do you have a very different experience in Vermont and New Hampshire? Oh, yeah. I think that I think that Vermont, you know, the mountains there are are a lot of fun in a lot of ways. And one of the things that you get when you have these these steep walled river valleys is really great uh, backcountry skiing that you don't quite get in New Hampshire because our the especially the lower slopes of our mountains are often uh, just not really amenable to to cutting a ski trail. But if you're looking for like above tree line, if you're looking for exposure, pure exposure, it's pretty hard to beat the White Mountains, um, which, you know, because they're more resistant rock, they manage to stand up to the onslaught of the glaciers better. They're a little taller. There are no trees up there. And, and so you can get that that sort of uh, above the tree line alpine zone experience for a much longer period of time uh, during your hike in New Hampshire. I think, Angela, one of the things I love about your podcast is that you found almost exactly the right person to figure out how this geology and geography uh, has impacted the identity of two places. A, a man named Chuck Wooster, can you tell us about him? Chuck is a farmer in White River Junction, Vermont. Uh, he and his wife run Sunrise Farm. Um, Chuck is also a Dartmouth grad. And like you said, he was basically the best possible person to interview for this episode because um, he literally wrote his master's thesis on this topic. He researched how the natural landscapes and geology and soil in Vermont and New Hampshire affected their cultural landscapes um, as well as their political history. Yeah, he, he tells us the story and brings us all the way to, to the late 18th century after the Revolutionary War. So we're, we're well past the, the glacial periods now. And, and let, we'll let him set the scene for us here. So in New Hampshire, you actually had a quite diverse population. You had sea captains and merchants and mariners on the coast. You had some farmers moving inland. On the Vermont side, same time period, Europeans had only been living in Vermont for really only 20 years. And the people who lived in that time of, of European descent were basically almost all subsistence farmers. So, Angela, what, what I hear in his story is Vermont, a place where it's mostly farmers living in small communities, somewhat more isolated from each other. New Hampshire has a seacoast, so you're getting people from all over the place coming through and they're building a little bit closer to the shore, maybe not as much of a farming culture. Do I have that right? Yeah. I mean, especially at this time in the late 18th century when both states were writing their constitutions. So these state constitutions actually get written with these people who are inhabiting these places in mind and their geographies in mind. What happened with the state constitutions? How are they different? Yeah, I mean, this this was a really interesting theory that Chuck shared. And obviously, you know, it's tricky to extract state politics from bedrock. Um, but I, I think there's something to this. Um, so in New Hampshire, Chuck says that Factions from various industries, like you mentioned, sea captains and mariners and merchants, um, presumably all with various agendas, right, 
wrote a state constitution that made the government complicated and inefficient on purpose. Um, and meanwhile, on the Vermont side, where at this time, European colonization and economic development was, wasn't as far along, it was mostly subsistence farmers, um, Vermonters wrote a constitution that was pretty straightforward. Uh, there was no Senate at first, there was just a House and a governor, and every town had one vote. So very simple. One town, one vote. And so that leads in his mind to a world in Vermont in which people band together in communities, whereas maybe in New Hampshire, people are a little bit more out for themselves. I think that was something that Chuck was interested in going into this research, because we think of kind of the two states approaches to state government, even today, pretty different, differently, um, where you know, New Hampshire is maybe more interested in sorting things out um, on the town level um, and not as much sort of big government on the state level, um, whereas Vermont, much more sort of community minded. And um, I think maybe a mentality where you do look to state government to to solve bigger problems. And of course, Sam, you may have a completely different analysis of the differences there. Well, maybe before we, we hear about uh, the next part of Chuck's theory here, I, we, we can hear from Sam. I mean, do you, does some of this resonate with you? I mean, does this make sense as, as we look back at the, the way these states are formed and then we pull it forward into the almost modern politics? Well, some of this absolutely does. I think that there's there's something really appealing about this argument uh, that sort of geology equals destiny, right? And I think in New Hampshire, I think about it uh, sort of north-south. It, you know, the mountains in New Hampshire sit right in the middle of the state. Um, and so the difficulty of moving um, from north to south in New Hampshire did yield uh, two different characters to the state. Um, that said, the, the constitutional argument, I... I I will say the the podcast lost me a little bit there, um, and and I wasn't quite able to articulate why until uh, yesterday when I knew I was going to come on the show. I called around to a few constitutional law experts, and what they said is that the the idea that our difficult to reform constitution came from our geology is a little a little backwards because. The history of our Constitution is that we used to be part of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and the New Hampshire Constitution is basically copied straight from the Massachusetts Constitution. Um, and in fact, early early on, it was very easy to amend the New Hampshire Constitution, and it's been amended dozens and dozens of times. And uh, and the the requirement that that it that any constitutional amendment passed by a three fifths majority of voters didn't come into play until the, sort of the mid nineteenth century. So, so you know, I do think that to a certain extent, geology does have a huge impact on how states develop. But uh, the the idea that that's how we got our constitution strikes me as a little ahistorical. You know, interesting to think about, but but uh, it it didn't quite ring true for me. All right. Well, well, here's one that that, that might, and this was a, an interesting theory that that, that Wooster had. And it has to do with the income tax. Of course, uh, as we as we well know, New Hampshire is a place that has eschewed income tax. It's something that a lot of states adopted in the 20th century. Uh, here he is. He's talking about how the income tax got passed in the state of Vermont. And this was not long after uh, a flood devastated the state in 1927. There was a great need for revenue at that point. And the farmers, who had tremendous power in the legislature because every town had one vote and most towns had farmers, they said, boy, we're going to pass this thing because the folks in Burlington and Rutland are going to have to pay it because they work in the mills. They have income. But we're farmers. We have land. 
So the income tax passed in Vermont really as a way to try and stick it to the, um, the blue collar working Democrats in the cities. I, I love that idea, Angela. Maybe it, it, it makes sense and maybe it doesn't. But I sure like the the idea of the farmers sticking it to the city folk. Sure. Yeah. And then and, and the idea, too, that, you know, they were land rich and cash poor or, you know, didn't have the same kind of nature of income as folks in the city and wanted to leverage that. Um, I think, you know, that is a compelling theory. And the, the effort to pass an income tax failed in New Hampshire, right? That's right. And um, the New Hampshire Constitution uh, says if you're going to change the tax code at this time, you need to have a statewide vote on that amendment. And it needs two thirds support. So 67 percent. Um, and there were actually several of these big statewide votes on an income tax in New Hampshire in the 20s and 30s. Um, one had just over 50 percent support. One had 60 percent support, um, you know, which might have been enough to pass it in another state. Um, but none got that 67 percent that the referendum needed in New Hampshire. So the state has obviously rejected the income tax many more times since then. Um, but Chuck does trace the votes in that era back to the soil. Um, He says, you know, New Hampshire didn't have that block of farmers that Vermont did to get this legislation through. Instead, many of the voters were working in mills in Manchester and all down the Merrimack River, um, and they had enough, you know, power to reject the income tax. Mm. One of the the things that is most compelling about this story, whether you buy some of Chuck's arguments all the way down uh, through the centuries, is that there really is a different soil characteristic in these two states, the the sandy, rocky soil of New Hampshire and and the lush soil that allows more farming, especially on the western side of Vermont. I'm wondering, Angela, if, if you believe that this really has developed a much different way of life in your state than across the border of New Hampshire or maybe even in other New England states that you've gone through. You know, I think a lot of what we explored in this episode, um, it did resonate with me in the sense that, you know, we were thinking about the powerful influence that farming has had on our state. And, you know, I think there are obviously other factors in play when you think about a state's evolution in terms of politics and identity. But because the focus of our episode was geology, um, it was illuminating to think about how the nature of Vermont's bedrock uh, did help shape our earliest colonial economies and values um, and the way that those characteristics kind of cascaded down over the years. And how about New Hampshire, Sam? I mean, still, it's called the Granite State, and the license plate still has a picture of a guy with a rock face. I mean, Granite is as much in the character of New Hampshire as probably just about any any other place is defined by a, a geologic feature. Yeah, I mean, we're still struggling to get over the loss of the, of the old man in the mountain and not quite sure what to do about the fact that he's not up there anymore. Um, and, and I will say, you know, it's it's sort of like, what does New Hampshire have, right, As in terms of symbols of, of it being a state? Vermont has more maple trees. Uh, Maine has more seafood. Massachusetts is where the revolutionary history all happened. So what have we got? We've got a great set of really granitic mountains. <laughs> and that's, that's what we've got to look to. I want to thank Sam Evans-Brown. Uh, he's the host of an amazing podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio. It's called Outside In. It's about the outside world and how we use it. Always good to talk with you, Sam. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And thanks also to Angela Evans. She's the host of Brave Little State, another of our favorite podcasts. It's a people-powered podcast from Vermont Public Radio. Thanks so much, Angela. Appreciate it. My pleasure. As always, we highly recommend that you listen to the entire episode of Brave Little State. It's a lot of fun. 
and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. We've linked to it on our website as well. It's nextnewengland.org. Coming up, competition pigs and horses, clam chowder and lobster roll battles, and a quick trip to all six New England states. Where can you find all this? Well, you can find out next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. The Eastern States Exposition, better known as the Big E, is in full swing right now in West Springfield, Massachusetts. The massive agricultural fair is in its 101st year. The Big E features a lot of the attractions that are familiar to many country fairs, livestock competitions, lots of greasy fair food, but it's also uniquely pan-New England. On the grounds, six permanent buildings showcase the goods, the cuisines, the attractions, and, and the quirks of each state in our region. As a show about New England, of course, the state buildings were what drew us to last year's exposition, and they did not disappoint. But first, nostalgia is a big part of what brings people to the Big E. Producer Andrew Moraskin spoke with a father-son pair whose history with the fair goes back at least 50 years. What's your, what's your name, sir? Kevin Cerniak. I'm, I'm the father, Walter Cerniak. <laughs> yeah, well, my father and mother, they moved to, from Cleveland to, to Springfield in 1958. So he remembers bringing my sister, who was born in 1956, and they saw Roy Rogers, Rogers whatever here. year that was. I had my daughter on my shoulder, and Roy Rogers at that time, he, he had, the horse was Trigger. He, was shoot, he shot uh, something out of, of the year. I don't know what it was, a quarter or something. But that was, the, that was the greatest time to see him. But I remember, you know, the first time, you know, uh, we saw uh, a horse was having a foal or whatever, a baby, and they were like, come on, come on, and we saw... I, Oh my God! I'll never, I'll never get it out of my head to, to see that because you know we grew up in the suburbs. Oh, we maybe had a dog, but that was it. After chatting with the Cerniaks, we followed some horses and their very well-dressed riders into an old-fashioned barrel-roofed arena, and it was like stepping into a different world. That organ music you're hearing, it was played live. Well, so here we have a show horse demonstration and. The riders are all dressed in bowler hats uh, and long tail coats. They have vests with ties and riding pants. It's very steampunk. But they're but they're female and they're kind of dressed like steampunk guys. I mean, like. And they're all women. Yeah. Reverse and chop, please. Okay, here they come. So the chop, the, the horses are picking their feet up very high up the ground. But the riders are hardly bobbing at all. They, they, the horses are so still as they pull their feet up and down. Oh my. We just had to know what was going on, so we went backstage into the barn. It turns out we were watching park horses, the kind of horse one might like to ride around Central Park back in the day, hence the fancy evening wear. We spoke with trainer Kristen Cater. Park horses are usually a little bit more naturally talented or a little bit more naturally gifted. They're being judged on their animation and their excitement and their manners. It's like Tom Brady having a good throwing arm. It's, it's um, something that you work on strengthening, but 
the natural raw talent has to be there. It's not something that can necessarily be enhanced or, or produced. It, it's something that they have to be born with. With a building for each New England state, it was a perfect time to figure out what makes each special. In the Rhode Island building, we started with the food. First of all, what is Rhode Island clam chowder? Rhode Island clam chowder is a meteor clam called a quahog, and it's a clear broth chowder. Has potatoes, celery, secret spices. Which clam chowder do you prefer? Do you prefer New England clam chowder or Rhode Island clam chowder? Ah, uh, that's a toss-up. We also have a roasted corn and shrimp, which is awesome and has a little spicy kick. So, so if you were to if you were to suggest one to me, what would it be? My favorite is the uh, roasted corn and shrimp. I need to get one of those. Okay. Yeah. You ready? Yeah. Let's, let's do it. Okay. Can we do it? Okay. One over. Thank you. You're asking us about chowders. Yeah. Do you know, have you tasted our fritters? I haven't tasted the fritters. You haven't? No. Okay. So I gotta, I gotta have one here. Dipped in the chowder, you think? Yes. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> Even though I was pretty full, I couldn't resist stopping by the lobster roll stand in the main building just to make a point. They were selling hot dog rolls filled with cold lobster in a mayonnaise sauce which is sacrilege to this proponent of the hot buttered kind. So I'm from Connecticut, where we eat, lob right, where we eat lobster rolls like the right way. No, 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 these are the better. Why are these better? Explain. Be because they're cold and they're straight from Maine. They're cold and they're straight from Maine. Right. But what else is it? It's just mayo? Just a tiny bit. Yeah. One little teaspoon goes into a big tub. Okay, so how did that come to be? How, why is it that's the Maine lobster roll and like the Connecticut lobster roll is the, the hot one? Because <laughs> Sorry. I gotta do my job. We also met a few somewhat more official representatives of the respective states. Do you work for the state or? I do, I work for Vermont State Parks. Oh, Vermont State Parks. Yeah. So, do you know what the Vermont State motto is? The Green Mountain State? Well, that's what it's called. Do you know what, do you know what the actual motto is? Um, I, I believe it's freedom and unity. Freedom yeah. and unity. Right, I was trying. I was trying to remember that. That's a pretty good one, right? Um, so, if you had to make up a motto for the state yourself, what would it be? Come be yourselves with us. That's original. That's pretty good. Come be yourself with us. I like that. Yeah, that's pretty nice. Give me your name, please, and your title again, sir. Uh, my name is Executive Counselor Joe Kenny, and I live in Wakefield, New Hampshire. I'm actually an elected official in New Hampshire. I represent 108 towns and four cities. So basically, everything that's north of Concord to uh, the Upper Connecticut Valley, Lakes Region, North Country is my district. We kind of co-administrate the state of New Hampshire with Governor Maggie Hassan. So when people come by and they're going to all the different state buildings and they're looking for a place to go vacation, I mean, do you ever try to explain to them why it's better to go to New Hampshire than, say, to go to Vermont? Yes, we always say one thing, no income tax, no sales tax. Tax-free New Hampshire, come one, come all. What do you think the state motto should be if it wasn't live free or die? I mean, everybody in the world knows live free or die. I mean, is, there, is there another state motto that's maybe a little cheerier, perhaps? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think um, there's a lot of play on live free or die. You know, live free and play. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things in the travel tourism uh, uses that, that particular uh, motto for. So I think, uh, actually, uh, you can build upon it. By the sword, we seek peace. 
but peace only under liberty. Oh, you know what? I just read that. Darn it, I just read that. If you had to give the state a motto, what, would it, what motto would you give Massachusetts? Hmm. The smart people state, because there's so many colleges. So what brings you guys to the, to the Big E? Do you come here every year to do this, or? So we are uh, Western Mass fire and life safety educators. So we all, all of us are firefighters that teach fire safety, but we are all, you know, volunteers. We're all here volunteering our time. And so you probably, have you been to the Big E just for fun too, or? Plenty of times, many, many times. As a matter of fact, my sister met her husband here at the Big E. <laughs> yes. Uh, when my kids were little, we used to take a day just for the buildings for the state buildings, another day just to do the games, and another day just to do the rest. So there's plenty to do. You can extend it for a whole week, and it's still you haven't seen like the whole thing. <laughs> now, if you've got an idea for a new motto for your home state, just tweet it to us at Next New England. To see photos and a video of our trip to the Big E, including my back and forth with a lobster roll lady, go to nextnewengland.org. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. If you enjoyed this week's show, there's an easy thing you can do to help Next reach some new ears. Just head to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or a review. Just search for Next New England. And thanks, it really helps. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and it's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR. <laughs>